0: Sometimes I show you love no I-
1: And welcome to One and Done TV. I am your co host, Ian Hamilton. And I am his other co host, John from Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Isn't that right, John from Milwaukee? That is
0: correct. We are tearing up those sweet, sweet waves on top of the graves of these shows, figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them One and Done. Today, we are talking about the absolute mind F that is John from Cincinnati. But before we go completely insane, Ian, what is something that you have watched recently?
1: Well, you want to talk about miracles, John, (laughs) because that's what a lot of the show is about. We'll get to that. Um, My friends produced a movie that was at Sundance. Very cool. Which is going to have a limited theatrical release starting March 24th. It is called Jasir. Mm. It co-stars Lorraine Bracco, who you may know from The Sopranos oh. or Goodfellas, Emmy and Oscar Award nominated actress. She is the lead female, but really it's about the Syrian refugee Jasir who has moved to Memphis and is encountering all sorts of racism and weird situations that kind of teach him what it's like to be a stranger in America the hard way. And um, it's a really ambitious film. Actually, I'm excited. I haven't seen the theatrical cut yet. I saw it about a year and a half ago when they were in preliminary editing stages so i believe we call that movie utero yes and i was able to give them notes and tell them everything i didn't like about it so this is your movie is what you're saying if
0: people like it it's because of you
1: right and if people don't like it it's because they didn't listen to me (laughs) um no i'm very proud of them though uh my Old roommates in New York, Mariana Trevino Stafford, she produced it, and Jake Stafford is an actor in it. I know he kind of took a production role as well. I'm not sure what that is, but uh, I'm just really proud of them. They worked really hard for several years, um, along with some incredible directing and acting and writing from some relatively new people on the scene. Uh, I know it went really well at Sundance. I'm looking forward to seeing it and I hope that everyone can get their butts to the theaters uh, March 24th and kind of the following two weeks it you know, rolls out in a limited way. So just see her, look it up. That's really cool. What have you been watching?
0: So this one is actually inspired by watching John from Cincinnati. It is not a surfing movie. It's actually a bit of a journey here. There's two episodes in John from Cincinnati where characters are at a bar and the bartender at that bar looked really familiar to me. And I was like, who is that person? They were in a two-season web series from 2007 or 2008 called Dorm Life. And so I've been re-watching the show Dorm Life, which I haven't watched since I was in college. What? And yeah, it is about 40 episodes, ranging from like 5 to 10 minutes And it's just about a floor of kids in their freshman year of college. And it goes through trials and tribulations and difficult RAs and relationships and fights and making a documentary. It's a fake documentary style thing. And I remember really loving it when it first came out. And gotta admit, holds up. It was this weird time in like, content creation, I feel like, where there were so many people making web series. You, you remember that time? It was like the late 2000s to like the mid-2010s.
1: I'd go as far as to say, up until COVID, people were still like, I'm going to make this web series. It's about being an actor yeah. who's broken LA. <laughs> I think people would think that's really interesting. Don't you think people would think that's really interesting? Yes, and this one's a little different
0: because it has a lot of heart. And it was really funny too, and it works as a comedy, but it's one of those shows that really gives a crap about its characters and they all fit their certain roles, but it's just exceptionally well executed. So I've been really enjoying rewatching that after seeing that one actor who had maybe two lines in John from Cincinnati. (laughs) And that same actor is actually the accordion player for the band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros.
1: You know, the ones who do,
0: Ah, home, here we come home.
1: Yeah. that one. They have had a couple of hits, I think. I mean, clearly this web series uh, struck a chord with you, John, to make you see that guy and then bring you all the way back to college. And then make you, what, did you rewatch the entire thing? It's a lady, Ian. The day after
0: International Women's Day. How okay. dare you? Let's cancel Ian. Just assuming okay. that an accordion player is a man. Oh I my I could have sworn goodness. you said he. No, and if I, wasn't paying I attention, said they. I believe. And if I didn't, then it's my fault. But you know what? I refuse to believe that until we roll back the tape.
1: All right. You believe that all bartenders are women and all doctors are men. I get it, John. I was too busy thinking about how I was going to ask you if that show would have been a better quibby. Quibbies were essentially like web series, but on your phone. Ooh, yeah. And you can't watch it with anybody else. No, of course not.
0: You have to sit in a dark room, look up at the screen or look down at your phone and be like, "Oh God, it's show time."
1: Five. Four, three, two, one, showtime!
0: In 2007, a mysterious figure enters a small surfing town in California and changes the lives of three generations of surfers. Unfortunately, the tides were good, the conditions were clear, but the surf was not up, as this one was canceled after one season. Today, we are talking about John from Cincinnati, The poster that you could not escape if you had eyes in 2007. I feel like they were trying to make this show everything. It's a very distinct poster in my mind of a beach, a guy in a wetsuit who is gently levitating off of the ground. And you just see his feet. I think I've seen that poster more than I've thought about the show itself. I don't know. What was your exposure to John from Cincinnati before we watched this show.
1: Well, I think the first time that we did one and done in 2015, we talked about reviewing it. So maybe that's the first time it came across my radar, but for the most part, I've just heard about it from you and from, uh, all time great podcasting legend, Steven Tobolowski. <laughs> talk about his adventures on Deadwood and David Milch, the writer and creator. And so I actually reached out to him, John, because he does put his email out there freely. Wow. And uh, he gave us a couple blurbs about working on John from Cincinnati that I will get to when the conversations reveal themselves. And I'll be (laughs) like, here's what Tobo had to say about that, John. Uh, so that's pretty cool that we got some insight from someone that worked on the show and with the creator. Because this creator, David Milch, I know it was co-created, but it really is in his voice. Have you ever watched Deadwood? No, it's one of those shows that like I
0: will watch before I die. I just have not.
1: I watched the pilot a long time ago. I thought it was cool, but it's very Shakespearean. Yeah. Actually, speaking of Tobo, one of the things he talks about is that... David Milch, when he uh, pitched Deadwood to HBO, he wanted to do a Roman drama that was all in Latin. And they said, hey, we're actually looking for a Western. And he said, oh, same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And they also just
0: did that show Rome too, like right before Deadwood. Was that HBO? or That was was HBO, yeah. What? Yeah. I'm very positive that that was right before Deadwood. I think Rome was like early 2000s.
1: I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, he has a highfalutin idea of language and dialogue. And bringing that from Latin to Deadwood, you can trace that lineage straight on to John from Cincinnati, right?
0: Absolutely. I was doing a little research on David Milch, and about 10 years ago, I read this amazing book that I would recommend to anyone. It's called Difficult Men. It sort of follows the rise of prestige dramas through like the Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men. And obviously David Milch and HBO are kind of right at the center of it. And they actually take like a whole chapter in this book to describe David Milch. And for those that don't know, David Milch seems like an absolute wild card in every sense of the word. He would be caught like peeing off of the second Floor window onto flowers on the first floor and be like, oh, I guess that's Milch. He also had serious drug and alcohol issues, but he was mm. kind of the life of the party as well. I got a quote here that said he had a drawer full of money and he liked to whip his dick out. He wow. was also this sort of very controlling showrunner, too. He worked on Hill City Blues, which this is a crazy story. He wrote His first script for Hill City Blues as a freelance writer, the first draft he submitted, they were like, oh, this is our fault. We didn't really flesh this story out much. And they gave him one note and he took it and he won an Emmy for his first produced TV script. Oh, my God. So he has this sort of innate talent, it seems like. But he did Hill City Blues. He worked on NYPD Blue. And there's just all these stories I wanted to read this one excerpt that was from a series of essays that the playwright Teresa Rebeck wrote, who worked with David Milch, and she used the name Caligula as a David wow. Milch stand-in. So she writes, Caligula's stories were fantastic. I mean, he was a terrific storyteller, and he could really write. He was also often a terrible human being. She described bullying acts of cruelty and professional intimidation, alternating with ostentatious generosity. Milch was famous for randomly handing out $100 bills and running a weekly lottery for the entire cast and crew in which he could give away thousands of his owed dollars. And then she says, When he wasn't being a completely abusive, chaotic nightmare, Caligula was exquisitely charming. He was funny and compelling, kind, alert, and at times deeply compassionate. So David Milch is a very complicated figure. And he got his big shot, obviously, to run a show as HBO was really in its heyday with Deadwood, which ran for three seasons. And the end of Deadwood was a pretty kind of contentious one, it seemed like. Not because of anything that David Milch was trying to defend the show. It actually seemed like it was the opposite. HBO was like, hey, could you think about maybe doing this as the final season? Because your audience is not really growing it's pretty stagnant and it's an expensive show to do he's like let's just do six episodes like i'm done with this thing i want to move on to the next thing but it got out that hbo was canceling deadwood and it started this period where hbo was kind of going through an identity crisis and that's where john from cincinnati comes from too it comes from this place of HBO kind of figuring out what its next thing is. We talked a little bit about that with like Feed the Beast, right? You know, AMC post-Mad Men, post-Breaking Bad. What does this network look like? That was kind of what HBO was like in 2007 as Sopranos was ending, as they had some things in the works, like they had the rights to True Blood and Game of Thrones and Boardwalk Empire at, at that point, but only True Blood was really in production. And so they still had this period. And my understanding is David Milch just kind of, cold pitch this show about a mysterious surfer that is helping out this family or, you know, interacting with this family. And the people were like, yeah, we want to keep this relationship with David Milch, but we got, we got this, we got John from Cincinnati out of it. Out of- Which
1: is entirely indescribable as a show. And we will do our absolute best to describe it. And As we're talking about sort of the setup leading up to what created this show. So it's a show about a a guy that shows up. He's kind of simple and kind of magic, right? Yeah. Is he an angel? Is he a demon? We don't know. All we know is magnificent things happen and we'll get more into that. But I was thinking about um, the appeal of this show and what I could compare it to and I thought that Maybe it came off the heels of Lost a little bit. Yeah. It would have been in the height of Lost. And I've never watched Lost (laughs) except the pilot. But I imagine that the show has some similarities to it in that strange things are happening. You don't know why. You don't even exactly know what's happening. But you want to see where it's going Mm -hmm. because it's got to be something, right? (laughs) And. And I think that that is must be part of how this show was born. And then the only other thing I can really compare it to is Twin Peaks. Yeah. Because it is in many ways a, a family soap opera, a little bit about not, not so much a small town like Twin Peaks, but a community. And there are mystical things happening that everyone is trying to wrap their head around, yet most of the people involved understand that it is happening and they're not questioning that they're like yep this is happening let's all just talk about it and try to continue to live our lives and figure out what exactly this is and also there's a very literal comparison i will make that is uh near the end of the show there's this bar that acts like if you're a twin peaks fan which you haven't watched twin peaks right john no
0: but i'm assuming you're gonna say the red room
1: Yes. Which is known as the lodge. Mm -hmm. So it is this place outside of space and time as we know it, that people kind of get stuck in, in a foggy dreamlike state. And that is as good as I can do to compare it to things that you may have seen. Yeah. Otherwise it is uniquely its own. Shakespeare, Twin Peaks, Maybe Lost. I don't know. I haven't seen
0: it. <laughs> well, Lost, I think, is a very conventionally told show in that it introduces conflict, but it just keeps introducing mysterious things with the hopes that you will eventually understand what these things mean in the grander scheme of things. I think John from Cincinnati, and from what I understand of Twin Peaks, is more committed to the idea of you're never going to know what this is about unless you're smart like me. No one. <laughs> Not necessarily, but it is that sort of complete disinterest in solving the mysteries. Whereas I think Lost is, I think, interested in setting up the mysteries and maybe not paying them off for years and years at a time. It also does seem to have that idea of Twin Peaks where it does feel like a singular vision from somebody who has a very specific idea of what is going to go into this. But David Milch didn't Create the show alone. He created it with the author Kem Nunn, who is credited with inventing this genre called surf noir. He actually wrote the novel that Point Break was based on uh, Mm. called Tapping the Source. So he definitely has this idea of what this, at least, culture is. And I mean, when you say that it is not necessarily a small town. I think it kind of is. I mean, the city of Imperial Beach, California, which is a real town that's just a little south of San Diego, really, really close uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border. It is a community. It is a very tight-knit one. And I mean, I will say that, you know, this is a big cast, but Imperial Beach is probably the 22nd character of the show when you say Ian.
1: (laughs) I would. I do before we move on, and I know we're about to, the Twin Peaks fans are gonna get mad at me if I don't mention that actually in Twin Peaks the Return episode eight, we are given many answers as to why everything happens. Okay. So I don't want you to disparage David Lynch too much. Although I get why that is what you think it would be. I don't disparage David Lynch and I don't disparage David.
0: Milch either. I just think that it is a show that is more interested in making you think about what is happening than explaining what is happening. Sure, sure. Cool. But in addition to John, uh, who is not from Cincinnati, though he may say that he's from Cincinnati, the show really focuses on three generations of the surfing family, and they are the Yos. I think it's easier to start with the grandparents, the eldest uh, Yos, who are Mitch, who's played by Bruce Greenwood and Sissy, played by Rebecca de Mornay. Ian, how would you describe either of these fine, fine people?
1: Well, Mitch is a washed up surf god who hurt his knee so bad twenty years ago that his leg almost got amputated and that sort of created this family drama that you know cascades through the rest of the generations of Yosts where he was a great surfer but this horrible thing happened his son was an even better surfer and uh then he became a drug addict and Mitch all of this is to say that Mitch is affected by this legacy that he's created. And he goes between being a jerk and kind of a yelling guy to a wannabe Zen, you know, Buddhist type, right? Sometimes he's like, hey, I'm angry. And other times he's like, you know what? We're surfing and I am floating two feet above my board, (laughs) quite literally. So let's all just chill out because Sissy are yelling a lot. And Sissy, (laughs) the grandma, she is the matriarch that has held this family together for years, and now that there are all these wrenches being thrown into the life that they've taped together, she goes from being this character that we empathize with for clearly putting up with all these horrible men in her life, and being the primary caretaker of her grandson, to then really losing her mind. And also we learn uh, something that she did in the past that makes us like her a lot less Mm -hmm. at a certain point. Um, But she goes from being kind of the steady rock to the loose cannon, Mm -hmm. I think. Like she uh, becomes suicidal. She's kind of raving, yelling at everybody. She's constantly screaming at her son. She's no longer really a great slash grandparent to her grandson you know she just oh man she really goes off the rails
0: yeah I think the best encapsulation of Sissy's vibe is there's one scene later in the show where a character looks at their phone and they've got a voicemail from Sissy and that character picks up listens to the voicemail and the voicemail is just Kai Sean's gone and then hangs up <laughs>
1: She had some really powerful <laughs> yelling scenes. Oh, I wrote that where too, she yeah. she lost it yeah. on people, but then it became every episode, and you're like, oh man, she's... Uh, I keep bringing it back to Shakespeare characters, really. It's just like, there's a bit of a Lady Macbeth thing that happens where she's like a steady rock with some decent ideas, and then is an in the inconsolable mess at certain parts.
0: Yeah, whereas Shakespeare invented terms like cuckold um david milch really sort of cements the term ball buster in terms of characters defining sissy they call her a ball buster all the time and so there's there's that little undercurrent there too but
1: why don't you tell everyone about butchie john
0: oh butchie's a hoot uh so butchie is mitch and sissy's son as he had said very much a drug addict is constantly trying to tie off. He is always also bitter and yelling at things. He's also very tense and ready to explode on anyone about anything. Let me try to paint a picture. Uh, I'll try to do my best butchy impression here. Ian, ask me a question.
1: Hey, John, where have you been the past week? I haven't seen you a lot. What the f*** is it to you, you f- idiot? I was just trying to get good and f- high
0: I just am feeling f***ing dope sick man all I want to do is just eat my f***ing sandwich take a horrendous f***ing dump and then I want to lay down and f***ing, f***ing, f***. and get high and get high yeah of course was that did, do you think I encapsulated that pretty good this is a guy that's so tense that even when he's standing around he does like a Mary catherine Gallagher and like shoves his fingers in his pits with his shoulders hunched up like this that's just him standing just
1: tight. I really liked this actor, actually. I thought he did a great job with a character that could have been very one-dimensional. But Butchie, he has a horrendous drug problem that's clear, and that's why he hasn't been there for his son. And he signed his son away to his grandparents to take care of. Mm -hmm. But he goes through being high at the beginning to then... like. All the emotional waves of wanting to be clean, being clean, being clean for too long, mm-hmm. you know, feeling that itch, really needing that itch to be scratched and taking it out on people, apologizing, fidgeting, um, being a nice sweet person who then hurts you or Mm. you know in the reverse and he lashes out at people and then for moments has clarity to be like hey did i hurt you like are you okay all right then i'm gonna go get good and high then (laughs) because you're so good now he
0: checks in on people before he screams at them again at least he or vice versa or vice versa that's true But the youngest Yost is Sean Yost, played by the actor Grayson Fletcher. I thought this was an interesting story. Um, So apparently David Milch just saw this kid uh, who looks like the epitome of just surfer bro. uh, The shoulder length, straight blonde
1: hair. I assume that they just cast a good surfer into this role. They cast a good
0: skateboarder. Whoa! They saw him skateboarding around the set, and then they they cast him off of that. At least that's the IMDB version of the history of that. But Sean is this sort of, again, living in the shadow of his father. Not really living in the shadow of his dad, but definitely has his status elevated because he is a Yost, but still he is this surfing prodigy. He's only like 13 or 14, I think and is starting to get sponsorship offers and he's kind of grappling with this thing about he's been with his grandparents and his grandparents want to hold on to him because of all the chaos that they've brought into their son's life and that their son has brought into his life and it's all just kind of cascaded into making Sissy and Mitch, very particularly Sissy, very helicoptery. And so they don't want him to basically go down the same path that Butchie did because Butchie's whole thing, too, is that he got signed way too young and they basically burned him out. And that led to his alcohol and drug problem. He's only really able to pay for anything because he got a settlement from the city that I guess like a truck ran over his foot or something and broke it. I don't
1: know. I'm sure whatever it was, it was made up. They kind of alluded to that Uh, a little bit of like, oh, what are you going to get another payment for your toe? (laughs) Or something like that. Everybody hates Butchie. but They love him, but they scream at him because he has put them through so much over the years and he is absolutely not trustworthy. No, Not even for a second.
0: And to be fair, none of these characters are very trustworthy and a lot of them really hate each other. Like,
1: even... Outside of the family, too. I mean, we can get to that in a second, but. True. It- uh, one last word on Shawnee is that the youngest Yost is very even keel. I recognize so much in this character of everyone else around him is yelling and telling him what to do. And he's being told no by his grandfather and yes by his grandma. And so he just adopts this personality of never really reacting to anything.
0: Whereas Sissy is the extreme yelling and Mitch is the balance of the yelling and the calm and Butchie is sort of the aspirational calm, but has the shortest fuse that you could possibly imagine. Sean is like the other end of the spectrum from Sissy in that he just goes with it and he's just trying to surf and he's just trying to make the most out of the time that he's got. But that is the Yost clan. So hopefully this has made sense so far. We're going to get a little bit more into the extended universe of John from Cincinnati. When we go through the highlights right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors.
1: Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at TV. Email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Highlight Another quote from our exchange with Stephen Tobolowsky was he said that just as Deadwood fit the bill of the beginnings of civilization in a foreign language, John from Cincinnati also had something messianic or apocalyptic in its makeup, which I completely agree with because John from Cincinnati is either an angel or a demon, I don't know. But what I do know is that angels in the Bible were not human-like. They had a thousand eyes, okay? And they're, they come in strange shapes. And <laughs> this show, it, it brings, John from Cincinnati is a Christ-like, modern, angelic figure, but also comes with great doom. Mm-hmm. And it feels very biblical to me.
0: Yeah, it's also a lot about like the idea of storytelling. And I've heard David Milch talking about this. There's another quote in this Difficult Men book where David Milch is talking about sort of the purpose of the show and he says, "My understanding of the way the mechanism of storytelling works is that any story is constantly appending specific values to the meanings of words and of the actions of characters." And the fact that story uses as its building blocks words or characters that the audience believes it has some prior recognition or understanding of it Mm -hmm. is really simply the beginning of the story, but it's not its end. So that's how David Milch generally described that. So this is very complicated. And it all kind of stems from these miracles that John is able to manifest Not necessarily directly, but his presence brings about some very strange happenings in the Yost family. Ian alluded to the sort of big initial one, which is when Mitch is surfing, he just looks down and he realizes that he's floating about six inches off of the ground, and then he lands. It's like, huh, I wonder what that was. But then there's some more sort of serious things like... Sean is at an amateur surfing contest and he full on breaks his neck and nearly drowns in the second episode too. Yeah,
1: I was like, wow, they're killing off the kid in the second episode. (laughs) But then spoiler alert, he doesn't die. There is a miracle because actually right before he breaks his neck, there was a dead parrot at their friend Bill's house and the parrot magically becomes alive again. Bill brings the parrot to the hospital and just as Shawnee had kissed the parrot before and the parrot became back alive, now the parrot kisses Shawnee and he becomes back alive.
0: And let me say too, Shawnee has like a spinal fracture. He shouldn't be able to move any of his extremities. He also was in the water for an extended period of time, which basically ceased all of his brain function. And the doctor that works with him says there is no chance that he will live. And then this bird kisses him and he is fully woken up and is completely fine and is able to literally walk out of the hospital.
1: Right, and this happens after John from Cincinnati appears. And actually, I do want to backtrack just a second because in the pilot, he appears on the beach, he knows everybody's name, and then he just kind of meanders his way to find the Yosts Mm -hmm. and Butchie in the motel he lives in. As he's getting to the motel, money starts just appearing out of his pockets, the exact amount that people ask for. And then he seems like this simple person, but these little miracles start happening, these straight-up magical things. And then when Shawnee resurrects himself, that's when everybody, the family, starts to understand that something incredible is happening.
0: Yeah, Butchie initially is like, hey, this guy's my meal ticket. Like, he can buy me all the alcohol on the top shelf of the gas station. And then it sort of shifts as the tone of the show becomes more serious. And John starts sort of spouting off vaguely prophetic things. I mean, the first sentence of the show is John looking out at Mitch surfing and he just says the end is near, but he is able to also like kind of astral project himself into people's minds. Presumably he's able to make people do things for him, not like horrible things, just kind of put them in a zombie state where they don't really remember anything. They, the characters that are kind of hypnotized by him in this way, often say like after the fact, they say some information about what they did and they the people question that and they're like, did that really happen? And the people will say, I knew to say that or I knew to do that. They didn't maybe necessarily do the thing that they were saying. They just knew that they needed to say that. They had this compulsion because of John, essentially. Right,
1: which is exactly how they come to understand him as a person or rather a being of some kind where they're like he says things and he doesn't know what he's saying and he does things he needs to do but he doesn't know why it's kind of like he's being operated from another source Mm -hmm. whether it's an alien or a god or something like that then as he's in contact with everybody else they start to get moments where they are like him in their own way because he's putting it on them i guess uh oh and just like they're put into these fugue states like people start to have visions in the very first episode the owner of the motel wins the lottery and it's because he has epileptic fits and during one of these fits he had a vision of the lottery numbers and then kai uh works at the yost's uh surfing store right mm-hmm. where they sell the wetsuits and the boards and stuff yeah a long time and,
0: friend and confidant of the Yoast family
1: right and he makes her see visions where literally her piercings start to become hot he says see god kai and then her eyes roll into the back of her head and she starts to see all the other characters in the show where they're at being affected in a godlike way by John or whatever it is, Uh, you know, he starts to tell people things that someone else said to them that no one else would have a way of knowing. Or even in the case of Bill, played by the great Ed O'Neill, Bill's dead wife speaks through John at one point. Yeah, I mean, there are more miracles, but I I don't know how to get to all of them.
0: No, pretty much anything that, john does is some sort of unbelievability and it most closely affects these sort of close people in the yoast life there's bill who is like a retired cop as well and is kind of a pseudo father father figure to sean there's Mm -hmm. kai there's also two other supporters that come in like the doctor who took care of Sean and basically said Sean's going to die after he has this horrible accident and then sees this kid miraculously come back to life. He sort of gets wrapped back up into the Yost family and he actually like leaves his practice because good old, uh, Tobolowsky, uh, is he is the hospital's attorney who basically says, Hey, sign over all of your rights because the hospital doesn't want to get sued. And this physician's like, yeah, sure, this kid did something that I cannot explain. And therefore, I just want to see where this goes.
1: Yeah, he has a real personal crisis, but also like enlightenment from this whole experience because he knows that Sean's dead. Then he's alive. And he's like, look, you need to sneak your son out of the hospital right now because if he stays any longer, the hospital is basically going to make him a specimen to do experiments on. Yeah. And they're not going to give you advice in his best interest. It's going to be in their best interest. So he lets him go. And then Tobo comes in as the attorney to be like, hey, you uh, messed up. And the doctor's like, yeah, that's fine. I'm just going to make up a story that says I messed up and I destroyed the evidence because I think that he's enlightened by the experience, but also the whole thing is so insane Mm -hmm. that he's not going to be like, it was a miracle child and this happened. It's like, they're all covering up this miracle together. And that's what kind of is the connective tissue to this group.
0: Yeah. They all see the insanity and they want to kind of explore the curiosity through all of the different avenues that it takes. And it kind of turns on them, too, a couple times in the show because they keep John around for a long time until, like, Sean gets put in danger, essentially. You know, Sean goes missing for an entire episode. That's, I think, another important thing about the show is that except for two episodes, each episode takes place in one day and they are consecutive days. So the 10 episode season takes place over nine calendar days. And so everything's happening back to back to back to back. They're all kind of exploiting John. John is also sort of exploiting them, but he also could be God. So he could be doing whatever he wants. Who really knows?
1: And all of them know that he's like using them, but they know that something magnificent is happening So they let themselves be taken away by this wind that's carrying them, right? They're like, this is insane, but clearly there are miracles happening. We've watched Mitch levitate. We've seen Sean come back from the dead. My parrot is now giving me telepathic information (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in Bill's case. And so they're like, I don't know. This is crazy. John gets murdered by some people that pick him up from the side of the road and then heals immediately. And this happens twice. Yeah. And he just gets stabbed. There's blood all over him. His wounds immediately heal. And the people in his life see it. So they're just like, okay, this is happening. I don't know why. I don't even know what's happening. But I'm just going to stick around this motel yeah. and Check it out.
0: Let's go into the motel a little bit. Please, please. Because, yeah, it's this weird thing where it's the motel where Butchie lives. But we also get to know the sort of caretaker and manager of the property played by Luis Guzman. We also get to know the owner of the company, who's this mentally unstable guy who, as Ian mentioned earlier, he won the lottery and he is a homosexual. I think exclusively for other people to call him a homosexual. Yes, uh, but he was like still kind of tied to the Yost because Butchie bullied him in high school. And he's this new owner of this really really crappy motel. And we also get to know the family's lawyer, uh, Meyer Dickstein, who is played by Willie Garson as well. And Okay, Meyer Dickstein's an interesting one because they set him up as this sort of guy who was a surfer, was a huge admirer of the Yos, and then he doesn't surf anymore, and now he just basically gives them free legal aid.
1: I guess. I had no idea why he was there in the beginning, to be honest. Louis Guzman's the caretaker, so you understand he's got to take care of the motel, but then I didn't know why he was helping him clean up all that garbage. Well...
0: Meyer Dickstein is the one that set up the deal and sort of helped with the purchase of the motel for the new owner. But there is a lot of just why are these people hanging around? And I think there's no better case study for that than with uh, Freddie and Palaka. Freddie is a drug dealer from Hawaii who comes to California basically to get money from Butchie for drugs that he was owed. Palaka is Freddie's associate. Freddie is just this Mickey Rourke-looking dude who only wears black tank tops and just kind of throws people around, including his associate Palaka, who within maybe five seconds of Palaka showing up on screen, Freddie breaks his wrist. And Palaka is just this, like, You got it, boss. Whatever you say, boss. I'll do whatever you need, boss. Do you want me to get your phone for you, boss? You want me
1: to lick the bottom of your shoe, boss? Which is so funny to see this actor play that character because in everything else, including- Paul T. uh, Goldman. Paul T. Goldman. He plays the tough mob guy. And I was like, wow, this guy's got some pretty- decent range i never would have thought because i don't think anyone casts him otherwise yeah
0: he is like the scary mob guy who is then put into this position where for an entire like two episodes he has a tattoo infection because he wanted to suck up to his boss freddy by getting this weird terrible tattoo on his neck that causes him to nearly die from
1: a fever which by the way in that scene when we when we are confused and we find out about this infection, oh that's Tobo when we're confused. comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one scene. The one scene. Tobo comes in to like serve some papers to sissy <laughs> and kind of just steps over the writhing body of this guy and is like, Hey, can you sign this paper while we're in the middle of figuring out this guy's situation? That by the way is not your responsibility, but also I'm gonna just step over him and leave. <laughs> I'm not going to say, are you okay? Do you need any help? I'm just, I'm he- I'm here to get this paperwork signed. I was like, I literally rewound the episode to be like, surely I'm missing some setup here to this scene. We never saw him at the tattoo parlor or anything.
0: Nope. I think I've rewound this show more than I have any other show that we've done. Just to Agreed. try to understand why people are, the places that they are, and why people are doing the things that they are doing. The Palaka-Freddy one is the most confounding.
1: I mean, I can explain it, and it is (laughs) because Freddy is a friend of the family that Butchie also owes only a little bit of money, and he oscillates between intimidating him and caring for him. And then uh, he keeps describing John as a shapeshifter, yeah. which I don't even know why. He's like, I saw it in the back of my car. He's a shapeshifter. And I was like, why is he a shapeshifter though? Like, I don't know. Um, but anyway, there. it's like everyone comes to the Yosts for different reasons and then gets exposed to the miracles that John is creating and they stick around to, quote, protect the family. Yeah. And then you just have... Basically, I'm going to bring it back to Shakespeare, and I'm going to be like, there's the royalty, and that that's where all the problems are. And then there are all the serfs just standing around kind of watching what the royals are doing and commenting on it yeah. a lot.
0: Yeah, they all have their own agenda, whether it be like personal but I think the there's also the business side of things, which kind of ties back sure. to the surfing. Let's get into Link, played by the late Luke Perry, who is this guy who runs a surf brand called Stinkweed. Okay, Link's motivations throughout the show are, they go in a couple different directions. Link starts out as this former manager of Butchie, who's kind of the one that ran him into the ground, He wants to sign Sean. The rest of the family is very skeptical of him because of the past with Butchie. But then Link works with a documentary filmmaker named Cass, who is then hired to basically hook up with Mitch, the Bruce Greenwood character, the eldest, the grandpa. And that is in an effort to basically break up the Yost family. But then, Cass's filmmaking prowess is the thing that kind of connects her to Sean because, sorry, connects her to John because John needs her camera in order to communicate with people through his father's voice. I am loving watching you struggle to explain that connection,
1: but I'm right, right? Yes. We don't know why you're right. We just know that John keeps being like, it's in your camera, Cass. All the zeros and one in your camera, you know? And she's like, what do you mean it's in my camera? And he's like, it's in your camera. Um, And John has this thing. Where he just repeats the same phrases to people and Parrot talks at them as Ed O'Neill says. And you don't know why. And guess what? It's not your business to know why.
0: <laughs> no. Ian, maybe we could do a little example of what a conversation with John looks like. Do you want to be John or do you want to be person trying to
1: get information from John? Why don't you be John? Okay. John, what are you doing here? I'm doing here. Okay, we got to go over to Mitch's and we got to, you know, wipe down his surfboard for him because it's too uh, dry.
0: Mitch needs the surfboard wiped down. It is dry.
1: Hey, do you need to dump out real quick? I need to dump out real quick. Oh, man, you're really into Kai, aren't you? Do you want a bone Kai? I want a bone Kai. I'm okay. into her. I'm not going to close the door while
0: I dump out, though, okay? Don't close that door. Bad. But that is literally all of John's conversations throughout the entire show. So there will be times where, for example, Ed O'Neill is like, where's Sean? And he's like, Sean's gone. And then Ed O'Neill will just like shake and be like, you gotta stop with the parrot thing.
1: And And he's like, parrot thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But then he'll also repeat phrases like, the end is near, Sean will be gone soon. He also says a very horrible thing about a group of people that I don't want to say over and over again.
1: Yes, there is a through line of... Early to mid 2000s racism in the show. And I kind of get it, but also it seems pretty unnecessary uh, to hit it so hard
0: so yeah. many times. For the 15 years after 9 11, everything was kind of about 9 11. And right. this is just another example of that. You know, they yeah. even say, John says at one point, basically the end of the world is 9 2014. And you're like, okay, I guess everything's
1: 9-11 now. Well, he says we're coming 9 right. 11 Right. So what does that mean? I don't exactly know. Um, <laughs> I do want to- Do you think that should be the
0: tagline of the show? What does that mean? I don't know.
1: Well, to that <laughs> point, I just want to bring it back to Tobo and what he had to say to us. And if you don't know who Stephen Tobolowsky is, he's Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. Great. You've seen him in a million things, Okay. So I asked him specifically, as an actor and a writer, how do you decipher the writing of David Milch, particularly in this show where the language can range from bass to Shakespearean? And here's what he had to say. I never knew, and he put never in all caps, what John was about. (laughs) I would get pages and phone calls from David saying, when can you be in San Diego? I'd say, huh? Huh? It was a a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and he wanted to shoot my scene. Today, I just got my sides, no script. I just kissed my wife goodbye and started driving. I got there, and David said, I'm rewriting your scene. We'll shoot tomorrow. And there I was with no script, no sides, no suitcases or clothes. But that was David, and we all had faith because of Deadwood.
0: Yeah. He definitely had a wealth of credibility based on that i mean going back to the origins of the show i mean he verbally pitched this thing without a script and hbo was like yeah we want to keep making stuff with you because you are david milch and that i think attitude was so present in a lot of the show i'll get into it actually with one of my dunzos but watching him talk about some of the more dense parts of the show, from a dialogue perspective, is maddening to watch his thought process. And he just seems to be this figure, like John, I think a lot, that people want to keep around because they want to eventually try to understand. And maybe that <laughs> is the connection between John from Cincinnati and David Milch from Boston? I don't know.
1: And you'll find out if we understand if this show should be renewed or not right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Ian again. And I'm going to do something that I don't think you're used to your podcast hosts doing, but I'm going to lecture you, okay? because I see you out there. I know where you are. I know what you're doing. Well, you're listening to a podcast, but you're out there in Nottingham. You're out there in Cleveland. You're out there in Boston. You're out there in Finland. You're out there in Israel. You're out there in the Azores. And you're out there in some places in Lithuania, I can't pronounce, and all over America. And guess what you're not doing? You're not reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I mean, giving us a review on Spotify and everything else is great, but let's be honest here. I need you to review this on Apple Podcast. That is, of course, unless you don't like it. Okay, back to the show. Well, John, this show is a lot, and it's very difficult to explain, and I don't think we even touched the surface of what the show is, even though we've talked about it for almost an hour now, but I got to know, John, after 10 hours of watching this, would you renew? I would not renew this show. So
0: I've talked in previous episodes about how I love a good crazy. I love something where people are just throwing things at the wall and lighting things on fire, and hoping for the best. This was not the same kind of fun for me. I was so lost and confused throughout almost this entire show. And I'm fine with being confused some of the time, but one of the things that really drove me crazy was that so many of the scenes felt like a long, bad improv scene. Characters don't leave when they should. They just kind of stick around. Random stuff is just kind of thrown in to hopefully advance the story. It feels so chaotic and yet so purposeful, which also just frustrated me even more because I was like, there's some ideas here. I know that there's a seed of something that's going on here. And I don't see it. And I was just like, maybe this will pay off. And then the last episode ended. And I was like, It does not pay off in the end. What? It does not. Oh, my God. And there was some stuff that I could enjoy and appreciate the wildness of it. But just it wasn't fun for me, too. And I think another thing was the characters just in general. Mm -hmm. None of them are likable. I think maybe like one or two of the supporting ones, but for the most part, the main Yost clan, I can't like grab onto any of them.
1: So, I think the most likable character is probably Louis Guzman. Louis Guzman, absolutely. He's, he's just hanging out, watching everything happen, making a shuffleboard court. But know? even he
0: somehow screws up making the shuffleboard court. That's true. Well, they're probably not
1: paying him enough, okay? No,
0: they're very much not. Uh, <laughs> but. There's just always something weird happening, and but not in the kind of fun way. So it was frustrating. I did not enjoy watching this.
1: Ian, what about you? Would you renew? I would renew despite the ending. Okay. Because I, I want to get more into the ending later, and I know we will, but you like a lot of crazy. I think I like watching a slow burn crazy, where I'm going, what is happening? And then they it keeps going, and it keeps withholding, just edging, John, edging, edging, edging. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, when is something going to happen? And I got to say, looking back at what actually happens, I don't think I'm very satisfied with it, but I like... The language, for the most part, when it gets really rich into the, frankly, almost blatantly Shakespeare ripoff stuff, that's when I got really into it, where I was like, okay, this is something else. This Mm -hmm. is like something kind of next level and also something that is old at the same time, where... Watching the serfs talk about the royalty, we take a moment out of the end of episode six to have a character basically explain to the audience what's going on, even though it's a bad explanation, right? That Uh, was the
0: thing I was talking about. There is a video. Have you watched this video?
1: Oh, no. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so there's a video
0: online of that scene that you were talking about, which just to set it up in the clearest way that I possibly can— this sort of astral projection where John is somehow basically able to invade people's subconscious. John is walking around a version of the parking lot of this motel and talking about all of the things that the different characters are doing or are motivated by or are thinking in some kind of way but he's using this kind of language where he's like talking about cave paintings and then he gets into potential motivations, but they're all, all these characters are together in one space, even though they're not physically in one space. And there's a 14 minute video online of David Milch standing in the parking lot, reading this absolutely bananas monologue (laughs) that he gave John and going through line by line, saying, This is what I mean when I say this. And this is wow. what this line means. And this is what this is alluding to. And he's talking about poets and he's talking about like ancient Babylon. And even him explaining that scene makes I did it more not, confusing. Makes yeah. it more confusing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry to interrupt. I just needed to throw that out there because. Oh, I knew a,
1: we'd talk about that at some point. So it's I'm fine a with wild that.
0: Wild video. Wild.
1: I like that it's a slow burn to some interesting dynamics and stuff, like I liked that uh like Billy and Freddie, one's an ex cop, one's a dope peddler, and they kind of have to form this strange alliance because they both love the family for whatever reason. I just didn't really know what was gonna happen next ever, and I liked the way that the characters. They did change and surprise me. I I feel like um, David Milch talking about how characters have to, in some ways, be stereotypes so we can understand them, so that we can move the story forward. I thought that he did some interesting ways of subverting our expectations. And I don't know. It was kind of like this. uh, I was just slowly going down the drain with it. I didn't love it, but I was weirdly here for it. And it's one of those shows that I wouldn't recommend to most people. I think if you like Twin Peaks, yeah, I would recommend it. Mm-hmm. And if you're into Shakespeare, I'd probably say check out the first five or six episodes, because you might find it to be interesting. But mostly, I don't know, it was just, it was different and it was bizarre and it was rich. In its own ways, both in in the way it was filmed, the story and the characters. Well, at the same time, it was slow and boring. Yeah, you know, I will give you that. You know, Thank it's you. not. Uh, I needed that. This is not some great, incredible show. This is it's it's a mind f- and not in a way that I guess it was deliberate, but I don't know how some of this could be. But um, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, I don't want everything to be like super clean and good all the time. You know, there's got to be some kind of media that I consume where I'm like, this is weird. You know, like what people get out of watching French films or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't get that out of watching French films. But you know what? I got some of it out of John from Cincinnati, whereas like there's something going on. There's a lot to think about, not a lot of explanation, and you know what? Bad ending, too. But I'd renew it, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Would
0: you say that you appreciated it more than you liked it?
1: <sighs> I don't even know if I'd appreciate it, to be honest. I think I just I <laughs> I think I just liked it. I did weirdly, at first I was like, this sucks. And the more I got drawn in, the more I got into it up until probably the last 10 minutes do you want to talk about the ending
0: do you want to fold it into your dunzos sure then let's get to the dunzo awards that's right it's time for the dunzo awards these are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch it could be the best it could be the worst it could be from cincinnati it could be from hell Wherever it is, we have decided to give these shows their just desserts. Ian and I both have two Dunzos to give out to any award category we want.
1: Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first award is the Spit Award, which goes to Ed O'Neill, who can really spit those soliloquies. (laughs) He can. I gotta say... I loved Ed O'Neill
0: in this show. He does a lot of incredible things that in other hands would come off as so silly and stupid. He yes. can nail the one-sided telephone call, if you will, too. He Absolutely. has like four. Talking of them.
1: to parrots, you know?
0: Yeah. There's so <laughs> many times where he's just like picking up his landline and he's like, What? No, I can't come down to the station.
1: Because I'm here with my parents, Gene. And you're just like. I buy you. God bless. And I have to think that as the show went on, they started giving him more of these soliloquies and monologues and, you know, highfalutin uh, bits of conversation because he could do it. I felt his, he was an ex cop whose wife died and he's very neurotic. You can see why they forced him into retirement. And he has uh, a lot of, soliloquies in episode four but he had a, a line later where he goes mortal combat with unseen forces i should deprive myself of telepathic information to spare your ir- irritation from cheaping and he makes it make sense you know and there's a lot of those things that i'm like i think anyone less than him could not make this make sense um or even with tobo when i was emailing with him a little bit i complimented his one monologue that he had uh with the guy from sex in the city where he goes to him and he's like hey um you know you could sue this doctor for a lot of money and if you wanted to you could give me a finder's fee but i mean it's probably like a page monologue that i guess was written that morning and he had to uh he had to give it everything he had. And I thought he did a great job. You could see it's like he went back to his training. He went back to whenever he was in Twelfth Night or whatever it was, right? Like he broke it down. He had his little mannerisms. He looked at every, at the guy in a funny way and he gave everything their moment. And Ed O'Neill just really made me feel those monologues. I think most people could not. John, what is your first dunzo?
0: My first Dunzo Award is the Poor, Poor Punching Bag Award, and that goes to (laughs) Tina. Tina, we haven't talked about Tina yet. Tina is Sean's biological mother. When Sean was born, Tina basically dropped Sean off at Sissy and Mitch's place and ran away, and it's revealed later that she did pornography for a long time, And she comes back to Imperial Beach, presumably to start having a relationship with Sean again, though this is after he went through his sort of resurrection. And so the are like, why is Tina back? She is probably just here because she is looking for some bit of cash or recognition based on this thing. But really, Tina's just there to have a relationship with her kid again. And when I say that the Yos are having conversations like, oh, man, why is she back? It comes off more as what? She's she's just here to suck another like and going off about this woman and calling her a bitch and a whore like every single frickin sentence. And I was just I just felt for Tina so bad.
1: She's the biggest porn star in the world, apparently, so... Oh, man. They they feel the need to uh, let her know that constantly.
0: She's essentially being treated like the sort of Jenna Jameson of, you know, the world. Yeah. Like, Sissy at one point says, if she comes anywhere near Sean, she won't have to think about killing herself. I'll do it for her. Sissy hates her. Sissy really, really, really hates her. Uh, There's also random guys on the street that are just like, Hey, I've seen you naked. You want to be naked again? I've tugged it to you a bunch of times. And you're like, Oh goodness gracious. Poor, poor Tina. So that's all I have to say about Tina. And she also like weirdly gets into a relationship with Luke Perry for no presumable reason. I don't know what that was about.
1: Uh, he paid her to come back into Shawnee's life. Right. in order To try to manipulate the situation with the Yost so that Shawnee would sign with him, which was Luke Perry's thing pretty much the whole season was he wanted their son, grandson to be under his label. They wouldn't let him because of what he, basically they blamed Butchie's heroin addiction on Luke Perry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Luke Perry eventually, you know, had to just show everybody his hams, right? <laughs> I was referring to when he moons the camera. Um, (laughs) He's like, (laughs) because that moment he's like, oh, and how about a little ham? And then he moons the camera. And I was like, I thought it'd be a better butt. He's like a sex symbol, you know? Yeah.
0: Beverly Hills, 9021. Ho. Ho.
1: What's your second Dunzo Award? All right. My second Dunzo Award is we got to talk about the ending. Because we got (laughs) to talk about the ending. Okay. So the uh, show ends in a parade. It ends in a parade. Okay. (laughs) And it's a parade that's thrown together in about two hours. And somehow Shawnee is taken away by John to, for lack of a better word, the lodge, and then returns in the last episode. And they all realize that they need to adopt this stick figure that John has used as uh, skunkweeds. Was it stinkweed? Stinkweed. As their new symbol. And basically, they introduce the new symbol after this parade at the beach so that they can announce that they signed Sean to the label, that Luke Perry is still going to run the company. And that John is signed to the label too. And there's a line where Luke Perry tries to explain this as like, hey, there's this miracle happening. We don't know what it is, but this is a cover for John. We're giving John legitimacy so everyone doesn't think he's some weird simpleton that kidnapped Shawnee. Uh, Something like that. Anyway, it ends in a parade, and it is essentially the problem that I have with all Judd Apatow movies now, which is where (laughs) the main character at the end is on stage, sees their love interest in the crowd, they shrug and smile at each other, and then the show's over. Okay. Uh, It wasn't quite like that, but um, it, it was a bit.
0: It's not like that because there's the parade. There's the parading of the new Yos as the face of Stinkweed. And then we hard-ass cut to Ed O'Neill saying a soliloquy to his dead wife in the bedroom that she lay dying. Uh, She had long passed, just to
1: clarify that. And his thing was he'd never been back up there, I think.
0: Exactly. That was the whole thing. He like looked at the stairs that led up to her bedroom and he hated even looking at the stairs, but he went up there, said his piece about how much he missed his wife. One of his birds came back, landed on his thing. And then we get one shot of Kai surfing and a voiceover of John saying, see God cast Kai. I believe. Mother of God
1: cast Kai.
0: Apologies. And that's how we end the show. Oh my gosh. So that whole thing really speaks to a big issue another big issue that I had with the show which was this show could have made more sense if the editing wasn't so random like they would cross cut in between scenes that were happening simultaneously which I get that as sort of a way to showcase how time passes but when you have a show this dense and disjointed when you are intercutting things that don't make sense together, it just makes it all the more confusing and difficult to place things in a space and place characters in some sort of motivation that can track.
1: Yeah. I I think one of the reasons that I would renew this show too is because the ending is not very good, but I think it's setting up for what season two would have been, which is John, in more of the public eye, which I think could have led to some interesting problems and him involved in maybe a bigger world or something. And uh, I would have been along for that ride. But at the same time, this ending was such a letdown. As soon as they said the word parade, I was like, what do you mean there's 30 minutes left? (laughs) I have to watch a parade? And then I did. (laughs) John, what's your second dunzo?
0: Is it a parade? No, but it's an infomercial, and it's the worst infomercial that you could possibly have. And that will go to when John convinces Sissy not to kill herself. There's this scene where Sissy, after losing Sean for like the millionth time, John does this weird astral projection And it's one of the few times that he doesn't do a a parrot thing. He's appearing outside of her kitchen window as she's like standing next to the sink with a gun. She's clearly about to do something. And here's what he says. Sissy Yost, are you sitting in your kitchen on 7th Street thinking of blowing off your head with your gun that you got back from Kai's trailer? Have you completely run out of whatever let you put up with your ass husband for 31 years? Do you feel that everything you ever touched in your entire life, you turned to mud? Are you ashamed, sissy, that once when Mitch was on one of his retreats and you were loaded on acid and Butchie was 13 and he just won his first contest and you were so proud of him for not being Mitch and you went into his room and he was whipping his snippy that you said, let me show you how to do that. And then he does a little like masturbating motion. Have you wanted to kill yourself every day since and not even known it and turned yourself into the worst ball buster known to man so no one would want to be with you and you wouldn't have to be afraid that you'd ever do something like that again? That's how ashamed of yourself you were. And I was just watching it. I was just like gobsmacked by this like barrage of things that we were having revealed about Sissy And it was told in this insane infomercial voice with this cadence of clear, direct questions. And then he eventually says, you need to baptize your pistol. And then she like takes the gun and like runs it under the sink. Oh man, that scene just kind of like fried my brain
1: a little bit. I kind of appreciated how direct it was at that point. I did too. No,
0: it was kind of nice to actually not just like tease out backstory, but just to go full-throated into hardcore exposition.
1: I'll tell you why I liked that scene. I liked it too, actually. Because it flipped the two characters of Butchie and Sissy for the audience, where up until now, uh, Butchie has been just a jerk, you know, addict who lashes out at people and doesn't take care of his kid and lives in a crappy motel room. Sissy has been the glue that's held the family together and been taking care of her grandson. And then we find out that she actually molested her son and that's probably the reason that he is the way he is now. Yeah, it was nice to have a reason why a character
0: was something.
1: Exactly, and for a revelation to completely flip the way that you feel about two characters I think is from a storytelling perspective, a solid chess move to make. Like I think that, that, that emotional impact is real.
0: I agree. When I call it the worst infomercial, I'm not saying it's the worst scene. It's just not a product that I would want to buy.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, you got me. <laughs> well, yes. let's take
0: a quick commercial break and let's figure out why nobody else wanted to buy this one. And now a word from our sponsors. We alluded to this before, but John from Cincinnati came at a very interesting time in the sort of, Run of HBO. 2007 was the last year of The Sopranos. The pilot of John from Cincinnati aired immediately after The Sopranos finale.
1: Whoa, what a headspace to be watching it.
0: Exactly. You have watched one of the most divisive series finales in television history that I think has since obviously been Claimed, reclaimed as being one of the most genius finales in TV history, but yeah, but that nobody song, was though. expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. I know, I know. And then you go right into the end is near, and whatever John from Cincinnati was. That is a trip to try to take people on, but it held a decent audience. I mean, it lost a lot of the Sopranos audience right after. They've got Nielsen oh, ratings. It did. The Sopranos finale drew an estimated 11.9 million people. The premiere of John from Cincinnati held about 3.4
1: million. Did they take into account how many people threw things at the TV and broke (laughs) their TV and could no longer watch it? I don't know if they
0: got collateral damage into the, the Nielsen ratings at that point. The interesting thing was that John from Cincinnati was pretty divisive, mostly positive. But the ratings didn't go down that much after that initial premiere. It actually held pretty steady and even started to increase a little bit after that sort of like initial drop-off.
1: A little Uh, bit of Deadwood going on right there.
0: Exactly. It maintained. And the final episode had about 3 million viewers, uh, which was more than uh, some of the episodes of Deadwood, actually. Still, one day after the season finale aired, the show was canceled. Whoa. So this was, again, like a really weird, interesting time for HBO. There's a couple of factors that went into this. So again, quoting this uh, Difficult Men book. So the show was pitched to two of HBO's biggest powers at the time, Chris Albrecht and Carolyn Strauss. Both of them were out of HBO over the course of a year after the show got pitched to, um, in May of 2007, Chris Albrecht was let go from HBO. Here's a little quote about what happened to him a month before the premiere of John from Cincinnati. Early on the morning of May 6th, he had been arrested outside of MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas, where Floyd Mayweather had just defeated Oscar De La Hoya in a light middleweight fight broadcast by HBO Pay-Per-View. Police reports described him dragging his then-girlfriend, Carla Jensen, toward the hotel with both hands around her neck. He slurred his speech and smelled of alcohol. Albrecht was booked for suspicion of domestic assault and spent that night in Clark County Detention Center. He would eventually plead no contest to misdemeanor battery, pay a $1,000 fine, and attend domestic violence counseling. Well, you so, know what?
1: If I saw that, I would be suspicious of domestic abuse as well.
0: Yes, I would. <laughs> you you might suspect after seeing domestic abuse that there would be domestic abuse.
1: Yeah, that's bad. It's wow. really
0: bad. And so he was one of the top guys at HBO, one of the big sort of champions of David Milch at HBO. And mm. he left a month before John from Cincinnati aired. So most of the creative power went to uh, Carolyn Strauss, who by all accounts in this book was a very difficult person to work with and was just kind of very cold. And there were writers that were pitching to her that she could actually like their ideas, but they were like, I don't want to work for her because of how sort of seemingly unsupportive she seemed about everything. Because it seemed like Albrecht was the guy that was like the handshaker moneymaker and Carolyn Strauss was the sort of behind-the-scenes brains of the operation.
1: A woman in power being called a difficult person to work with. What a new story. Tale as old as time, song
0: as old as misogyny.
1: Yeah, so she was ousted basically because writers were like,
0: I don't like you. Kind of, yeah. But the wheels were already turning with the sort of cancellation of Deadwood. Mm -hmm. We were talking last week, during the little voice episode about how when you cancel a show after one season on a platform that is designed to essentially enable creators, you're kind of going against your initial mission. And HBO was kind of facing something similar too. There's one more quote that I want to say about just this time. The fact remained that whatever the reason, the perception that HBO had become a hostile place to bring new material was real. And it had very real consequences. What do you think about that? Like, how do you respond to that sort of period of HBO?
1: As far as two executives that champion the show that were gone and then it being canceled immediately afterwards, that is a tale as old as time as well. I mean, no executive wants the old executive to get credit for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes back, you know, 70 years of uh, broadcast television. Um, But I do also have uh, Tobo speculated on why the show was canceled. Okay. And he said, in terms of one and done with John from Cincinnati, I do think it was about the unpredictability of David's creative process and cost. Mm -hmm. With Deadwood, which was a masterpiece, David was always rewriting and reshooting at enormous expense. The finale of season two of Deadwood took One month to shoot. One month, he says. (laughs) Most our shows shoot in five days now. The networks were a little nervous at the thought of another Deadwood in the making. And then he went on to say, I never knew it. it was about what John from Cincinnati was about. Yeah.
0: And that sort of sentiment, too, seemed to ring in some of the reviews of the show. I found some really interesting quotes from critics at the time. There was one that said, I hate everything about the show, but I'm sickly drawn to it. It's like a bad dream you wake up from that you just have to replay in your mind to, in order to remember how horrible it was. I think there's
1: a little bit of that with me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I feel that too. And I've got two more that I just think are very telling of sort of the impact that the show has on people. There's, here's one. I watch every episode, but it just doesn't stick. Nobody is likable. Everyone is screaming or babbling nonsense. Characters appear for no reason whatsoever. And worse, I just don't care. So why do I watch? Because I'm a TV junkie and it's hard for me to let go. (laughs) And these are the good reviews? (laughs) Here's the best review that I saw. Okay. And I think it really speaks to the initial appeal of the show and why people invested in it in the first place. We John lovers know something the haters don't and somehow I believe we are better people. <laughs> but when you watch the show, you definitely get that thing of like, if I like this, I'm smarter than the people that don't.
1: Yeah, I mean... I As somebody
0: think... that liked it, talking to somebody that didn't, I'm curious if you feel smarter than me.
1: I think that's something that you are a little bit more sensitive to than I am of like, oh, these these people are pretentious or they, they want to be pretentious or something like that. Um, I liked it because I didn't know what was going on <laughs> and weirdly like as a writer like whatever it wasn't hard to keep track of the story of what was going on no. but it was somehow confusing and in a weird way a I think you could trick yourself into it being a highly intellectual show as well mm-hmm. if you wanted if you want to think that mm-hmm. and I think when it was smart, it was about some of the, some of the really rich soliloquies and stuff. I think when it was dumb, it was some of the really bad placement of some of the soliloquies and stuff. And uh, it is just a fever dream. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's something maybe about the soundscape, the way that they make the waves and the wind combine. To create these moments that slow down when everything else has been going so fast, it draws you in like the ocean, John. And when you're caught in its current, you can't swim out. You need to get outside more. I am literally in a tent in the corner of my room that is completely <laughs> dark, if not for a lamp that I have on. <laughs>
0: Oh, the ocean, the ocean, the ocean. You have been drawn like David Milch as the siren out on the rocks and you will crash.
1: He really, that is perfect. And I'm so glad that you brought up that all of the good reviews for the show talk about how much it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a show, John. What a show we've reviewed. What a show we've
0: watched. This is, I think, more of a triumph of us making sense of this. Than anything about the show itself.
1: I'm, I'm proud, of, us. So much I'm proud more. of you. I'm proud Thank of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, actually, Thanks, man. for I didn't think you'd get this far. You know? <laughs> I thought you'd be red faced, crying, and out of breath by now. That was two hours ago. I have settled. <laughs> Any lingering thoughts? John, I'll just close out my thoughts to say that your speech pattern inclines toward the mega mania. Your speech pattern inclines toward the megalomaniac, me- I can't even say Towards the man <laughs> Leave
0: it all in. Mega- Leave it all in. Le- megalomaniac.
1: That's the word. But cull. You have to put cull in. Megamaniacal. The end. Oh my god. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna give up? That is on my that? thought final thought, because that is what you do on this podcast to me. Well Here's some blood-sucking
0: vampires selling
1: half a ham sandwich. Oh
0: God! Hail Christ! Pray for yourself. <laughs> you don't see this, man. You effing vampire reptiles. Because I will cut you into fifty effing pieces before you get your first question out.
1: That is perfect. That uh, there was also uh, there was one little monologue they gave Luke Perry that I really wanted to write down, but I, I forgot to that I was just like, wow, Luke Perry is saying this through a door right now. This is amazing. Oh, you know?
0: yeah. I know what you're talking about.
1: Right. It was just, uh, there, was, there was a lot of language to just kind of enjoy. I mean, even if the show was weird, I think that they would spit out a line and you'd just be like, whoa, uh, that's a lot. I
0: turned the subtitles on because I wanted to... Take in as many words as I could, and hopefully try to understand.
1: Oh, I watched the whole thing with subtitles as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely made me take in the words, and it definitely didn't help with my understanding of what was happening.
1: <laughs> Maybe if you if you read it less and you let it wash over you more, you would get it. Like the oceans and the spray and the
0: soundscapes. No, thank you. I don't want to be hypnotized into being killed by a freaking manatee on the coast of California. Where can people find us?
1: <laughs> um, first of all, I'd like to shout out a very special thank you to Stephen Tobolowski for yes. giving us uh, his insight into the show. Check out his podcast, The Tobolowski Files, about the life, love, and the entertainment industry uh, through his stories of being in Hollywood since the 70s. It's great. And you can follow us at One and Done TV on Let's see. Instagram, Twitter, Hive Social, uh, Mammoth still, even though I haven't updated that in a long time. We got YouTube Shorts. We got TikTok. And uh, for the most part, it's all to draw you to the podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast, you don't actually have to follow us on any of those things because you're already here. Woo. Thank you. Um, And email us your thoughts on John from Cincinnati, please.
0: We are thirsty for takes.
1: We are. Honestly, we could do a whole episode on just takes on this show, I think. Oneanddonepod at gmail.com. And as always, watch Paul T. Goldman.
0: Yeah. Starring Palaka from John Cincinnati. Oh, next week we will be back with a blockbuster of a time. That's right. We're talking about Netflix's
1: blockbuster. A easier to comprehend show. Netflix uh, could not resurrect that show from the dead and could not sneak that through the side door of the hospital. Unfortunately.
0: No, it could not. I am going to just like, breathe for a while. I gotta I gotta calm down.
1: <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to understand any of this podcast.:
0: No, if you took something away from this, we
1: salute you.: Power to you for sticking it out this long. Goodbye. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle
0: Media.